Movement is part of life. People drive into the city for work. Vines climb up to get more light. Some sharks have to keep swimming in order to breathe. When movement is long-term and crucial to survival, we call it something different. Migration. If migrants, human or animal, are lucky, they can get to their destination without too much getting in their way. Of course, this almost never happens. There's this place, a tiny island in the Indian Ocean, where two migrations are competing for the same space. This is the story of that island. How'd you like to spend Christmas on Christmas Island? You like to spend Christmas Island is a little rock in the Indian Ocean, a few hundred miles off the coast of Java. It's about 50 square miles and has a population that fluctuates around 1,800, most of which live in a little strip on the northeast coast. Christmas Island has both kinds of migrants, human and animal. But like most places, it used to be just the animals. So the crabs go down, they spawn. Three to four weeks later, we just cross our fingers and the little babies emerge from the ocean. This is Karen Singer representing Island Care, a volunteer organization focused on protecting island species. At the start of the wet season, the crabs begin a long walk down to the coast, where they spawn, lay their eggs, and wait. Then we can just sort of see that the rocks around the cove and other places are just covered in red, like a red tide, which moves, and then it invades in the houses along the The Christmas Island red crab migration is a phenomenon known around the world. Tourists make the long flight to the island to see the bright red crabs scuttling toward the coast. But the migration wasn't always so vibrant. The other key issue for red crabs is people, just people movements, particularly along the roads. Um, cars and crabs don't actually mix particularly well. When I first came here in 2004, people just didn't really think that much about driving over crabs. It was just part of the culture. The crabs are there, the crabs will always come. The roads would be all littered with smashed crabs. And it would be red in colour and it would be stinking. This is Mary and Susie Matthews, twin sisters who grew up on the island. They're actually the singers you heard earlier. They're describing what the migration was like when they were kids, red and smelly. And the car sound was Luckily for the crabs, this reached a point where something had to change. The migration started attracting the attention of documentary filmmakers like David Attenborough, who showed the migration and all the collateral damage. Yeah, people were horrified to see what was going on on the island. You know, all these animals were being you know, needlessly slaughtered. This is Max Orchard, a former park ranger on the island. He's describing how people were horrified to see what was going on on the island. I mean, it was pretty basic, really. Uh, I just looked at it dispassionately and thought, well, we've got to separate the crabs and the vehicles, so how do we do it? Park rangers started by installing a strip of plastic fencing about a foot high all along the edges of the island's main roads. It's mint green and looks kind of like a giant gutter, which it sort of is, just for crabs instead of water. 
The crabs run into this fence and are herded towards tunnels that pass under the roads. How much more do you have? Uh, so we, there's a bit of fence just near the bridge, so mm -hmm. we have to go from there. In one particular part of the island, where underground pipes make a tunnel impossible, the rangers have come up with a clever solution. So we thought, well, if we can't get the crabs under the road, why don't we put them over the road? So we designed the bridge. The bridge is massive. It's almost two stories high. The sides are almost completely vertical, but the millions of crabs that walk over it every day don't seem to mind. It's pretty amazing to see, and quite loud, too. Today, the island is crisscrossed with tunnels, fences, and bridges that are put up each year to guide the crabs to their destination. These bright red migrants are finally first-class citizens of the island. But not everything on the island has such a luxury. So rubber crabs, oh my gosh. Rubber crabs, have you seen rubber crabs? In most places, they're known as coconut crabs, but not on Christmas Island. Here, they're called robber crabs, but they're not criminals, except for the occasional flip-flop. They're called robber crabs here because of the thieving nature. You know, leave your shoe out and sometimes it might go and the rubber crab's taken it. For years on Christmas Island, robber crabs were fine. They don't have a mass migration the way red crabs do, so they didn't need bridges or tunnels. But around 2010, they started getting run over by cars by the hundreds. They do go on the roads, and again, we ask people to, to go around them. What Karen just said, go around them, is important. Local drivers know that if you drive directly over a robber crab instead of going around, even if it's directly in between your tires, it will lift its claws up in a self-defense gesture, get its claws caught in the undercarriage of the car and ripped off, and slowly die of dehydration. Until recently, the robber crabs were safe because locals knew to drive around. The roadkill is rare because people do drive slowly and do go around them, so the robber crabs are protected. There are even these road signs around the island, bright yellow diamonds that say, slow down, drive around, with a distinctive silhouette of a robber crab. But this protection went away as soon as new people started arriving on the island. There's something in particular, a place, that brought these newcomers to the island to begin with. I'm in the car with Craig, a local islander. We're driving toward the northwest corner of the island, the remote edge that holds the Christmas Island Detention Center. There's a ring road that goes right around it. You, don't, you actually don't have to go into the detention center. Oh, okay. That's what we're going to try and do now. We're driving around the center. We can't go in because it's temporarily closed, although a few months after I left the island, it reopened again. This center is the reason that outsiders started coming to the island. They came here to build it, and later to work in it, as guards, gardeners, cooks, electricians, on and on. Most workers came on contracts of about three months, not enough time to learn to drive around the robber crabs instead of over them. The center itself feels sort of like a dystopian middle school during summer vacation. Institutional, clean, no one around. 
but there are reminders everywhere that this isn't just another government building. So usually when you come here, this is where you had to come. You had to come through here, the main reception. Yeah. And your car had to go through the porty tell. Uh-huh. If you had to work inside. Every day. Yeah. <laughs> and Every day d- that goes down to be cars lining up here one at a time. <laughs> that must be so annoying to security. be... security, there's cameras out here everywhere. Wow. You don't want to be picking your nose, you'll get caught. <laughs> <laughs> the centre was built to detain asylum seekers coming by boat who hope to enter Australia. Most of the asylum seekers come from Iraq, Iran, or Afghanistan. Many of them travel by land to Indonesia first, where they then set out in boats for Australia. If you leave Afghanistan any way except going to Europe, if you go this way, Australia is the first country that's a signatory of the Refugee Convention. This is Janet, but we'll meet her a little bit later. So if you have to flee, that's the first country you can claim asylum. And people don't know that. The 1954 Refugee Convention was a UN treaty. Countries that signed it, including Australia, pledged to give stateless persons the same rights as citizens. Even though the detention centre on Christmas Island is remote, it's one of Australia's largest. At its peak, the centre held nearly 3,000 asylum seekers. Because the centre was closed when I visited the island, I had to go to Melbourne to understand what long-term immigration detention was like. Oh, thank you. I can grab one. I'm in the visiting room of the Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation, one of two long-term detention facilities in Melbourne. Have you had a Tim Tam before? I have, yes, one. (laughs) I'm here to visit two asylum seekers, Mohammed and Abdul. Their names have been changed to protect their identities. We're sitting at a round table in what sort of feels like a classroom. There are visitors at tables all around us, and it's loud. Guards are watching from each of the doorways. Like, the guy sitting on this side is like six, around six years now. I'm like, you know, four and a half. The other guys, maybe now nearly three. This guy is also more than four years. This is Mohammed. He's been in detention for four and a half years, some of which was spent on Christmas Island. Around 20 to 25 people, like more than five years in here. Like one, two guys, like nine years. One guy's around 11 years in detention. When the detention center on Christmas Island was constructed, it wasn't meant to be a long-term prison system. But because the center, and all others across Australia, is privately owned, companies actually profit from keeping people in detention for longer and longer periods of time. The Christmas Island Detention Center is part of a network, and the network is operationalized by Serco and designed by Border Force. But because you've got a private prison network, and they don't call them prisons, but we do, because that's what they are. They're, they're kind of worse. No, we should they, hang around with you. dollar sign on our head. Like, you know, this is dollar, dollar, yeah. for Sarko, dollar, mm-hmm. dollar. That was Abdul. The private company that he and Janet mentioned, called Serco, is one that directly profits from people's imprisonment. The cost of detaining a single person for a year is around $450,000, most of which comes from taxpayers. And even though so much money goes into the centers, the people detained in them are the last to see it. Christmas Island, they told us, you know, oh, it's not expired because it's the best before. 
He's telling me that a lot of the food detainees get is expired, since best before is considered to be just a suggestion. It's like, you know, like maybe like coffee, which is dry, but it's like milk. How you can use after like, you know, expired there? It's like when you boil, it's like splitting, like, you know. He's describing how some foods just can't be used after they expire, like milk, which splits when you boil it. Are there certain foods that you miss? I miss pretty much anything. <laughs> In many ways, the detention system is worse than prison. So one of the big problems in detention is boredom. Yeah. There is nothing to do every day. And on top of nothing to do every day, you don't know how many more days you're going to be here. Yeah. So when you're serving a prison sentence, you've got a very good idea of an end date. This is Janet Pelly. I live in Melbourne and I'm a management consultant. Her partner is currently in detention in Western Australia and was previously detained on Christmas Island. Most of the five years, probably four of the five years he's been in detention, he's been on Christmas Island. Janet is one of the few people who knows what it's like to visit the detention centre on Christmas Island. Uh, I was the only visitor. Oh, really? And very rarely are there visitors, so generally you'll be the only visitor. So we would go into this big holding room and sit in this corner with this funny kind of broken TV and what well, wasn't the TV wasn't broken, the DVD was, and <laughs> a couple of games and, you know, these two couches and they kind of left us to our own devices. But there was always somebody in the room with us, which was odd. It was like being babysat. Even though the centre on the island is so large, almost no one visits because it's so isolated. Flights into Christmas Island happen only a few times a week and are quite expensive. I felt like because I had come a long way, and it's very expensive to get there and they all know that, um, that people were trying to make it nice for me. They were mm. being as nice as they could be. But, you know, it was the big, heavy, clanging doors and it was all the security. When she did visit, Janet tried to forget, at least for a little bit, the reality of where they were. So we would walk and we'd... Um, play games like we were promenading, you know, we were walking around the Tuileries Garden in Paris and we would just make up these stories to amuse ourselves and we'd walk around this gar- this yard and they would sort of think it was quite funny because most of the guards were kind of okay. Um, but it's that thing of, of creating different realities because the reality they're in is so bleak, is to try and just create some sort of softness or some sort of colour because, mm. you know, you, you can't sit there and talk about how terrible it is. But even if she could help create some mental escape for a little while, there is still no physical escape. I believe there was only two people who ever got out of there, and one of them fell over a cliff. This is an islander who used to work at the detention centre. It's, you wouldn't want to escape from there because, well, there's not many places you can go, is there? I remember thinking, I can leave and go for a swim in the ocean. I can leave and drive through a beautiful forest and stop any time and see all these amazing things. And um, he has to stay there. Janet's partner is currently still in detention. On an island filled with expensive crab fences and bridges, it's people who are kept from going where they need to be. I remember seeing along the road, there's all those signs that say, beware the... Oh, slow the down, crabs. drive around. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, but I would always see these crabs smashed and I was think, that's them. They're being smashed. You know, they, they are just, you know, they are just smashed day to day. 
For migrants, moving is survival. Red crabs need to make it to the ocean to continue their life cycle. Migrants escaping violence board boats in the hopes of finding a safe place to dock. Robber crabs without claws quickly dry out and die. While some migrants are encouraged to move, to follow mint green gutters and climb bridges over roads, others are forced into stillness. These, these are not detention, these are concentration camps. Yeah. They're doing the same, you know, but Hitler, he just killed people and they just don't want to kill, they just enjoy, you know. If they kill us, you Who told you they don't want to kill? No, no, if there they, is no human rights, none of us will be alive. Yeah, but still, if they kill us, you know, then it is no more fun, you know. because it's this big gray razor wire center. And then you jump out of it into this beautiful forest and you can go to this beautiful water and they never leave. Even like, you know, I think it's a freedom is a good thing. Like, you know, I think it's the best thing before, I don't know, but now being in here for a while, like, you know, I know I'm missing my life, you know to like live a human being again. This podcast was made possible by the support of the Stanford Beagle 2 grant. Many thanks to everyone, especially those on the island, who spoke to me, answered my questions, and welcomed me in. Thanks especially to everyone who interviewed with me, including Bridget Arthur, Craig Wood, Jonna Luke, Fuki Hang, Chris Su, Karen Singer, Yit Mung Sho, Susie and Mary Matthew, Mark Bennett, Gordon Thompson, Bluey, Max Orchard, Janet Pelly, Nicole Ehrlich, Troy Lansit, and Pamela Kerr. Many thanks to my mentors, Jake Warga, Gordon Chang, and Hilton Obenzinger for all of your edits, feedback, and support. The songs you heard in this podcast were sung by Susie and Mary Matthews on Christmas Island in November of 2018. Abdul, one of the asylum seekers I met, was recently released and is living in Melbourne. This is the first episode of Following the Water, a podcast on the intersection of natural and human phenomena. Thanks for listening.